started, so I'll open with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here to study your word. Um, We thank you for bringing us through another week. Uh, Thank you that it's Friday um, and that the weekend is is, uh, rolling up and we ask that it would be a time that's restful, but before that, we pray that you would give us the energy we need to finish this week out strong uh, and, and to focus in, especially on the lesson that we have uh, for this class period right now. And we ask that you would be with us and would help us, for it's in Christ's name that we ask and pray. Amen. All right, so we're a little bit behind, um, but we're going to just start jumping into stuff, all right? Um, We've already done a little bit of an introduction to Matthew's Gospel. Um, Let's start by talking about Matthew himself. Um, What is Matthew's other name? Levi. Levi, all right. So uh, Matthew is his Roman name. Uh, Levi is his Jewish name. Um, And uh, what is his job? He's a tax collector, um, which means that he works for who? He works for Rome. Uh, Do the Jews really, you know, if you're not a Sadducee, uh, do the Jews like Rome? No. No, No, right? Uh, Unless you're a Sadducee. Sadducees do like Rome, but but most of the Jews are not Sadducees. Most of the Jews do not like Rome. Uh, So Matthew is probably a pretty unpopular person with his people. Um, especially, not only is he working for Rome, but he's doing it as a tax collector, which looks like this. Uh, let's say I was the tax collector, and my job is to go to all of you and collect your taxes and give them to Rome. So Rome says, uh, hey, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this Josh fellow, uh, he owes us 25 bucks in taxes. And so I go to Josh, and I knock on his door, and he opens the door, and I say, hi, I'm a Roman tax collector. And uh, he says, okay. And I say, you owe the Roman government $75. So Josh gets the money out and hands me $75. And how much did he actually owe? $25. So what's happening to that other 50 Right into your pocket. Right there. I keep it. So tax collectors are seen as dishonest. They're seen as thieves. They're seen as traitors because they do this to their own people. Uh, You know, instead of being someone who is loyal to their uh, to their to their kinsmen, to 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 the fellow Jews, uh, they thieve from them, they rob them, they mistreat them, uh, all out of allegiance to Rome. So, tax collectors are very unpopular people. Um, Something that I think is very interesting in all of this is tax collectors, we could describe them as takers. They take stuff away from you. Um, Levites, what were Levites supposed to do? Yeah, they were the priests. And what was their job description? What were the different things that they were supposed to do for the people? Yeah, travel around, minister, offer sacrifices. And one of the main jobs was to do what with the law of God? Keep it and to teach it. it. Levites, especially the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, mentions how important the teaching ministry of the Levites is. They were supposed to be, 
we could say, givers. They were supposed to be people who gave God's word to other people. And so Levi is supposed to be in a position where he is a a giver, where he is someone that is communicating God's word to his fellow kinsmen. He's supposed to be someone who is giving people peace, ministering to people, pouring himself out for people. He's doing the exact opposite. He is a taker. He's a robber. He's a thief. Until he converts. Jesus will call him. Where is Matthew when he gets called by Jesus, by the way? In his tax booth. Good. Right? He'll be called by Jesus. And the very first thing that Matthew will do is he'll throw a big banquet with all of his tax collector buddies in his house. A big party like that. Who's paying for all the food? Matthew is. So he gives this huge banquet, this huge party, and he finally fulfills the duty that he should have been doing this entire time. He, he gets all of his buddies, all his tax collector friends, all of his kinsmen, everyone he can think of, he gathers them all into his house in order to give them Christ, in order to point them to God. And so uh, he finally starts doing what he was born to do at that point in time. So a few notes on Matthew. Um, the Gospel of Matthew is written to what type of church community? I've told you about this already. Just Jewish, Christians. Jewish, Christians. Jewish Christians. And what is going on at the time when Matthew is writing? What is it? Uh, Christianity is becoming illegal. Yeah, Christianity is becoming illegal, but what is legal? Judaism. Judaism is. All right. Um, Matthew is either written... Um, you know, it, it's probably written in that window. There's a very short time. It's only like a decade where that is true in the Roman Empire um, because um, the Romans will get very upset with the Jews shortly afterwards and there will be a Jewish-Roman war where Jerusalem is destroyed. Um, but there is, you know, a little small window where that is the case. But, you know, think about it this way, too. Uh, these Jewish Christians, they've converted to Christianity. Um, they have mothers, fathers brothers, sisters that haven't converted to Christianity. Uh, They have a synagogue community that probably largely did not convert to Christianity. And so what are they experiencing from from the people around them, from their neighbors, from their family members? What are they maybe experiencing there? Maybe not from the Romans, but but maybe it's persecution there. One of the reasons why in Jesus' gospel, he says... Uh, brother will hand over brother and son will hand over father talking about the persecution that will come from one's own household so this community is probably being persecuted by the Romans but they're probably also experiencing persecution from family members neighbors who aren't Christians who, who, have, who think that they're heretics who think that they are blasphemers because they believe that Jesus is the son of God So it's a persecuted church. It's a church that is very tempted to fall back into Judaism. And Matthew is going to use the Old Testament like silly all over the place. You can't can't find hardly a page in this book that does not have multiple references to the Old Testament. And Matthew's point in doing that is to try to show these Jewish Christians that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament, and they should not fall away from him. Um, In that as well, 
you guys should know from your test, which by the way is graded, um, uh, we have one person that needs to make it up and I'm gonna let that person make it up before I hand them all back to you, but they are graded. Uh, you should know from your test though, um, the Gospel of Matthew is also very pro what? Gentile. Gentile. So I mentioned a few ways that it is pro-Gentile. One of the ways is Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1 uh, records four women, and all of them are what? Gentiles. Gentiles. Let's talk about who they are really quickly. Uh, The first one that is mentioned is uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. The text of Genesis never comes out and tells you that Tamar is a Gentile. It never, it never makes that explicit. But in Genesis chapter 14, there is a town in Canaan. Uh, so what type of people live in it? Canaanites. Canaanites. There's a Canaanite town that is called Tamar. So... Where might you expect this woman, Tamar, is from? Tamar? From that city, probably. Um, it's at least a word that is, that is used in Canaanite, uh, it, you know, in, in, very popular in, in Canaanite-ism, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, it's likely based on that detail that Tamar is a Canaanite. Um, and then the next one is Rahab. Uh, verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Uh, where was Rahab from? Jericho. Jericho, which was the first city Israel ran into in the land of Canaan. Canaan. So, um, you know, pause and think about this really quickly. Judah has children with Tamar, and from Judah and Tamar comes the entire tribe of Judah. So all of the people born into Judah are half what? Canaanite. Canaanite. That's a very interesting detail, right? All of them are Canaanites from their mother's side, from Tamar's side. Uh, Rahab is a Canaanite. Rahab uh, gives birth to, um, let's see, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of of Obed by Ruth. Ruth was from Moab, um, which is one of the Old Testament's least favorite nations, right? It's a very wicked place. Uh, And then the final one is in verse six. Um, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Uh, Anybody remember what nation Uriah was from? Yeah, he was a Hittite. Um, And in the ancient world, um, you know, if a, if a Canaanite woman married an Israelite man, she was now part of what nation? Israel. Israel, right? Uh, so if a woman marries a Hittite man, she's now part of what nation? Hittite. Yeah, her citizenship can shift that way, right? Uh, that, that actually kind of happens today as well, where, uh, you know, if you have a, an American, uh, you know, a woman who is an American and she marries... Uh, you know, someone from a different country, uh, just like legally, if that person wants citizenship, it's much easier for them to get it based on that. So um, Bathsheba, it doesn't come out and tell us, you know, oh, she was also a Hittite, but she was married to a Hittite. 
uh, which means we should associate her with that nation. So for women in, uh, notice that that genealogy is always father, son, father, son, father, son. It breaks at four points to include women, and the four women it includes are all Gentiles. Um, and so this is setting up a very interesting idea in Matthew. He's writing to a Jewish community. Jews have a very hard time accepting that Gentiles are also experiencing salvation, are also being invited into God's family. Uh, and so this book right from the beginning is showing, well, Jesus's family is diverse. Jesus's family is multi-ethnic. There's Jews and there are Gentiles. Uh, a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, we've talked about this as well too, uh, Jesus is born and the only people that recognize it are who? The Magi, who follow a star uh, to, ultimately, to Bethlehem. Um, someone the other day asked the question, how did the Magi know something about this star? And, and the short answer is, we don't really know, okay? Uh, some people have made these really wild speculations, and there's really no basis for any of them. We don't know uh, how these Magi did this. But I will say this, what other Gospels tell you about these Magi? Answer? None of them. Only Matthew includes this story. And it's helping Matthew because the scribes and the chief priests, they all know that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but the only people who actually go, the only people who go and see Jesus are these Gentiles from a far off land. The only prophecy in the Old Testament that mentions that the Messiah's uh, coming will be marked with a star is in the book of Numbers, chapter 24. Um, this is, uh, let's see, where is it at? I need to remember the verse. Um, this is from the book of Numbers, chapter 24. Um, I'm starting in verse 15. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. Anybody remember Balaam? Yeah, talking donkey guy. Um, What nation was he from? Moab. Moab. So he is a what? He is a Gentile. He is a Moabite. All right. Um, Is he a good guy in the story? No. No, he is not. But interestingly, God speaks through Balaam and he gives a prophecy about the Messiah. So this is, this is a guy that dies, and the New Testament tells you uh, pretty, pretty much where he goes after he dies, and it's not the happy place. He's not a believer, okay? But in Numbers 24, he's going to give a prophecy about the Messiah. God's going to, you know, uh, if God can speak through a donkey and, and, and tell Balaam truth, I guess he can speak through Balaam and tell us truth too, right? So... Numbers 24 says this, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And this is what Balaam says. I see him, but not now, 
I behold him, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Uh, someone crushing the heads of enemies. What, what verse does that remind you of? Yeah, good. The son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be this kingly figure that defeats the enemies of God's people from the tribe of Jacob, from the nation of Israel. And this guy is being described as a star. There's somehow a star related to this. And so in Matthew's gospel, the opening story after Jesus is born, a bunch of Gentiles recognize his birth. And the way that they do it is based on a prophecy, I think the only prophecy in the Old Testament given by a Gentile. It's helping this community see that God has spoken and worked in the Gentiles before. God has has led these Gentiles to the Messiah in order to worship him at his birth. We'll talk about that story in more detail later on. The very next story, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Herod starts killing uh, people in Bethlehem trying to kill the Messiah, and Joseph takes Jesus to what nation for safety? Egypt. Egypt. So Egypt is a place of salvation in Matthew's gospel. It's a place of safety in Matthew's gospel. God uses the Egyptians to protect Christ early in his life. He works through the Gentiles to accomplish his purposes. It's a positive story about Egypt. Here's a question. Can you think of another one? I don't think so. Probably not. But in Matthew's gospel, there's a positive story about Egypt. Right? So... And then, of course, it's going to end uh, with the go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. All right, so just from, you know, two chapters, looking at two chapters of Matthew, very briefly, do you see how it's pro-Gentile? And guess what? I could open to the middle of Matthew and show you that. I could open to the end of Matthew and show you that. But it's very pro-Gentile. All right, and it's helping this community get over some of their bias. All right, you know, imagine the Israelites. We are the chosen people of God, and it's only us. And now through Christ, that's really not true anymore. The the Gentiles are being saved. They're having a hard time with that shift that has taken place. Matthew is trying to show them, well, even in the Old Testament, this was predicted. Even in the Old Testament, there were hints at this. Even in Jesus' family, there are a bunch of Gentiles. And so you shouldn't be surprised if in God's family as a whole, in the church, there, there's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. All right, so uh, open to Matthew 1, verse 18. Any questions so far? You guys see that in Matthew 1 and 2, how like every story is being very pro-Gentile? Yeah. About the prophecy of uh, Balaam, uh, I remember something about Sheth. Who's Sheth? I don't know. Um, because there's a Seth 
but he's a good guy in the Bible. I don't know who Sheth is referring to. Ashley? Yes. All right. So uh, Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Um, somebody read starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Someone want to volunteer to read? Uh, Izzy, I saw your hand first. Will you do it? Yeah, 18 through the end of the chapter. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill... All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not... I don't know that word. Consummate? Consummate. Um, he didn't have sex with her. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus in this text is born of a virgin. virgin. He is born of the Virgin Mary, uh, and it says in verse, um, uh, let's see, uh, verse 18, she was with child from the what? From the Holy Spirit, all right? So, does Jesus have an actual human father? No. Uh, he, uh, he is born of a virgin, born of a woman who has not had sexual relations. Uh, why is that important? It's important because it fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah, but why else is it important? It's not something that can happen naturally. Okay, so it's a miracle that is showing God is at work right here. This is a big deal. It's important. Why else, though? There's another big reason. It makes him like pure and that way like God is the actual father. Okay, it, you said something about it makes him pure. Let's go through that a little bit more. Who committed the first sin? Which of the two though? You know, the New Testament always says that the first sin was attributed to Adam. Now, you read the story, and who does the serpent target? Eve. Eve. And who is deceived and eats first? Eve. Eve does. But if you look really closely at the story, there's two things that you really need to pay attention to. Number one, where is Adam when all of this is happening? Right beside her. Adam has been given a job to work and keep the garden. That keep the garden has to do with protection. Yeah. Uh, that keep the garden has to do with protection. So a walking, talking serpent comes up to your boothang and, and starts, you know, saying sin, sin, sin. And does Adam protect the garden? No. So Adam, even before he eats the apple, it's not an apple, even before he eats the fruit, what has he done? He sinned. He sinned. 
The other thing to keep in mind with this is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it mentions that Eve was genuinely deceived by the serpent. She bought the lie. 1 Timothy 2 also says Adam was not deceived. What does that mean? He knew. He knew. He knew what? That it was a lie. That it was a lie and that what would happen? They would probably not. Not good things would happen. And he did it anyway. Which brings us to the very astute theological observation that sin makes you stupid. Makes you do dumb stuff. Right? Um, So, anyways, I could spend a lot more time on that. But but all of that to say, for for a number of different reasons. Also, who was the command specifically given to don't eat from this tree? It was given to Adam before Eve was even created. Alright? It was Adam's job to pass that command on to Eve after she was made. But before she's formed, out of Adam is when God gives Adam that command. It's given specifically to Adam. And so all of this is pointing us to this idea that Adam at least had a very unique responsibility in all of this. He failed in a number of ways. And so this, the original sin, the first sin, is attributed, attributed to Adam. Now, did Eve sin too? Yes. Alright? But Secondarily, primarily it was Adam. Does that make sense? Is that kind of helpful? All right. Um, I know that that's kind of a confusing thing, but there's a a weight of evidence behind saying it's Adam's sin first. Um, So, the first sin came from our first father. All right. I think the idea in Scripture um, is is that the sin nature then is passed down from your paternal parent. From your father's side. All right. Adam sinned first. Adam passed his sin down to all of his descendants. It's not that Eve, or sorry, it's not that Mary was sinless, but it's that it, it seems to me that since Adam sinned first, it's passed down through the father. Jesus doesn't have a human father, so what does he not inherit? Sin. sin nature. All right. We need Jesus to be perfect. We need him to be perfectly pure. And the virgin birth allows for that, all right? This, this means that the guilt of Adam, the sin of Adam, is not passed down to Christ because Joseph is not his actual father. Joseph is an adopted father, all right? So Jesus is born of a virgin. It, angel shows up and says, I want you to name your son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and it also says um, uh, from the prophecy of Isaiah that it would be right to refer to this person as another name. What else can we call him? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. Because this is truly God with us. God in the flesh. What we celebrate at Christmas, God became a man. So his name is Jesus, but another appropriate way to refer to him is Emmanuel. You okay? I just brought back we three spies memories of oh. this song. Alright. So, um, we keep going into chapter 2. Uh, looking at chapter 2, verse 1, uh, will somebody read for us the first six verses? Josh. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his 
saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no uh, Judah, sorry, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Okay, so in that text, um, these wise men come and they say, uh, hey, uh, where's the Christ been born? And who is troubled? Anybody. Well, tell me the groups. Who was troubled first? Herod. Herod. Who else is troubled? Yeah, the scribes and the chief priests are also bothered by this. That's a really interesting detail. Why do you think Herod is troubled by this? The, the Christ, you know Christ is the same word as Messiah in the Old Testament, right? The Christ, the Messiah, is supposed to be a what? King ruler. A ruler, a king. Why would that bother Herod? Because he's the king. I'm the ruler and the king. I don't want competition. Why does it bother the chief priest and the scribes, though? If people, if word gets out among the Jews, the Christ has been born. The Christ has been born. What are they going to think the Christ is going to do? What do they, what's their idea of a Messiah like? A warrior like the Maccabees. If the word gets out, hey, the Christ has been born, the Messiah is here, what might happen? A giant war. A a, a revolt, a war, and who might be very upset about this revolt and war? And what might Rome do? Destroy everything. Lay waste to it. So the chief priests and the scribes are also pretty upset about this message, which is kind of ironic. You know, you would think that they would want the Messiah to be there, but they're actually bothered by this, and they aren't going to be among the people that go to see him. They're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's in Bethlehem, and the Magi are going to say, all right, we're going to go to Bethlehem, and the chief priests are like, have fun with that. We want to stay away. All right? Um... You want to see something weird in this text? Yes. I'm not going to answer this today. Oh. When are you? Uh, next week. Okay. I will answer this one next week. I'm not going to answer it today. But let's do an exercise. Um, Matthew 2, verse 6, has a quote from the Old Testament that says, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So, in that text, is Bethlehem a great city or a not great city? Great city. city. Bethlehem, by no means are you the least in Judah. You're a great city in Judah, is what's implied. So, Bethlehem is by no means the least in Judah. Uh, That's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Sophia, will you go to Micah 5, 2 and read it for us nice and loud, please? We went, oh, did we go over this last year? Oh, you guys all remember it then. Dang. What was the name of that little city? Is that the one where it's like a little nothing city? Bethlehem? We're talking about Bethlehem here. 
Man, I didn't know I covered this last year. It's still yeah. my own thunder. <laughs> All right, go for it. Read it, though. Ephrathah. Wait a minute. Bethlehem is what? Is too little to even be considered part of Judah. This is my paraphrase, of course. But the idea is there, right? Um, What does it look like these texts are doing? What what did Matthew do? What did Matthew do? Matthew made his sixth error. Matthew changed it from saying you're, you are the very least to saying you are by no means the very least. Alright, since I already went over it last year, I'll explain it again very quickly. Alright, oh no, Matthew, did Matthew make a big mistake? Question, is Matthew smart? Yes. Question two, does Matthew know the Old Testament better than you do? Yes. Most question number three, Matthew is writing to what type of Christians? Jewish. So question four, does his original audience know the Old Testament better than you do? Yes. More than likely. Yes. Uh, question number five, if you made an error this pronounced on a paper, would you likely catch it before you turned the paper in? You would yes. think. Probably. So, uh, you know, some people have this theory that the biblical authors are stupid idiots and just make these weird little errors like this all over the place because they're blumbering baffoons. There's my alliteration here. I don't think that's the direction we should go with this. Does Matthew strike you as a dumb person? No. He doesn't. Do any of the biblical authors? I don't think so. I don't think that we would still be reading their literature 2,000 years later if they were. Peter has some bad Peter has some bad moments, okay? Peter has some bad moments. But whenever you read First and Second Peter, he doesn't strike you as a dummy, right? He has his stuff together. So why does Matthew change this? I think he does it intentionally. And I think that there has been a very important event that has happened between Micah and Matthew in Bethlehem. <laughs> Someone help me. What is it? I don't know. Is it the bird? Yeah, Jesus has been born there. So in Micah's days, you could consider Bethlehem, this little rinky-dink out in the middle of nowhere town that's too little to even be part of Judah, same way that we might think of like Sweetwater, okay? (laughs) Um, Some of you love Sweetwater, and I've offended you deeply, Um, but um, I told you the whole like Daughters of the American Revolution thing that happened there, so... Yes. Yeah. Were they saying Yankee Doodle to me? Oh, dude, you need to hear about that. So, anyways, um, you know, in Micah's day, maybe you could talk about Bethlehem that way. But Matthew is, is, is making this point to try to make a theological statement that you can never think about Bethlehem that way ever again because who was born there? Bethlehem was honored to be the birthplace of Jesus. So you can never think about it as being too little to be part of Judah the way that they did in Micah's days. Now you're going to remember it with prestige and with honor because that is the birthplace of the Christ. I think that's why he, why he changes it. By the way, the New Testament does that occasionally. We have to just make peace with that. Paul, Ephesians 4, changes the meaning of a psalm in the complete same way. He takes Psalm, I think it's 69 in Ephesians 4, which talks about how men give gifts to the Messiah, and he changes it to the Messiah gives gifts to men. 
All right. I think the same thing is happening in, in that text as it is here, where Paul has a purpose. He expects his reader to pick up on the fact that he's changed the wording a little bit, and he has a purpose in doing that. But I'm not going to go over that one today. Guess when we'll go over that one? No, uh, we'll go over that one whenever we get to Ephesians next semester. So uh, that was a long ways away. All right. Um, but anyways, the New Testament does that occasionally. Um, so uh, the wise men go to Bethlehem and uh, whenever they get to Bethlehem, what do they give the Messiah? What do they give Jesus? By the way, are there three magi? Does the text tell you there's three magi? We don't know, but how many gifts do they give? They give three, but there's likely more than three. Um, I would kind of expect there to be a fairly decent number, um, but there are three gifts, and sometimes we read that as if there are three magi, but that's not necessarily correct. Um, there was a there was a woman uh, a few years ago that was about to publish a book that was um, she was going to call it Christmas Myths, and it was going to be about like all the way that our nativity scenes are wrong. And uh, she talked to the uh, publisher, and she started writing the book, and then wrote the publisher and said, "You know what? I feel like I'm a curmudgeon. I feel like a Grinch for writing this. <laughs> like, like, yeah, people sometimes are like, oh, the, the three magi. And like, technically, that's not correct. But like, why write a book and kind of ruin Christmas for people? So she stopped, which uh, I thought I've always thought is kind of kind of funny. Uh, perfect time to say Christmas. Chris, oh man, gray." I know what I'm doing next summer. Okay, <laughs> so um, they bring three gifts, and what are the three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Have I gone over with you? I don't know how to spell frankincense, so I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, myrrh. Uh, have I gone over with you before why those gifts are significant? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, everything in the temple, for the most part, is made out of what metal? Gold. Gold. Uh, frankincense is the base oil that you use yearly whenever you rededicate the temple. So um, every year there's a temple rededication where the priest will take oil and they will spread it over the, the temple to consecrate it. And the base oil, the thing that you use the most in that is frankincense. Um, and then myrrh, or actually, no, I'm getting those backwards. Myrrh is the base oil for that. Frankincense is an oil that you use on a lot of your sacrifices. So um, whenever the Magi show up at Jesus' house, they make it look and smell like what? The temple. The temple. Here's a really good question to end on. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle is built. Where does Israel get the supplies for that? Egypt. Yeah, they get it from Egypt. They plunder the Egyptians. As they're leaving, the Egyptians come out and say, please leave, here's all of our money, right? And that's how the tabernacle is constructed. Solomon replaces the tabernacle with the temple. And you know where he gets all of his goods from? Cyrus. Yeah, the, uh, from the king of Cyrus and Sidon, um, from a Gentile king. He gets all of the lumber and all of the stuff that he needs. That temple is destroyed. The people come back after the exile in the days of Zerubbabel. And who is willing to finance the temple in the days of Zerubbabel? Persia. So every time the tabernacle and temple was built in the Old Testament, who contributed? Gentiles. Gentiles. And here, 
We have a new temple. Jesus will say later, my body is the temple. He is the place you go if you want to experience God. He is the place you go if you want to be in God's presence. And who is, in a sense, constructing the temple in this story? The Magi, who are? In Gentile. They are the Gentiles, right? And so Matthew is picking up on this Old Testament theme, and once again, the Gentiles are building the temple. Once again, the Gentiles are contributing uh, here to the place where you go to experience and be in God's presence. Again, a very pro-Gentile sentiment and idea. I'm not going to give you guys reading over the weekend. You can have the weekend off. Uh, Some of you might want to do the extra credit thing I told you about, Um, but we will continue in Matthew next week.